The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Trust, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, dressed listeners, I am sure that I'm not the only one out there that takes a little bit of inquisitive glee in the recent popularity of these what's in your handbag or what's in your bag videos that seem to be going around various media outlets lately. Like I think Vogue has been doing some allure, US Magazine, et cetera. We could go on and on. But basically, if you are unfamiliar with uh, these videos, they ask a celebrity to empty the contents of their everyday bag and share what's in it with their viewers and also potentially why. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's something so appealing and satisfying about this simple concept. It's like we are all dying to know whose bag is secretly more chaotic than our own or who carries the quirky things that give us a glimpse of who they really are, if that's possible, material, culture, et cetera. April, I have to know, what are a couple of things that you always carry in your bag that might just surprise our listeners? Well, I don't think it's necessarily what's in my bag, but it might be the shocking quantity of said items that are in my bag. <laughs> a absolutely ridiculous amount of lipstick is are usually in all of my bags. And just for the sake of research, before we, we started recording, I, I opened my bag that happened to be on the dining room table. And I think I had five different shades of lipstick <laughs> in it. And that was just that particular bag. So that's on the tame side because there are lots of others other lipsticks and other bags. Um, And I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's no wonder why I'm always like, where's that mangrove color? Where's my ruby woo? I mean, they're just, (laughs) they're everywhere. But that's one constant for me. What about you? I mean, I guess where you have a huge stash of lipsticks, I have a seemingly endless stash of lip balms and chapsticks. I must have like six different kinds that I alternate through. I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And actually, for my birthday this past year, you gave me some of the Dryland's Wild Lip Balm, which I always carry with me now as well. Another thing that I always, always, always have in my bag is actually sunscreen. And that's because I actually suffer from a dermatological condition called uh, melasma. And if I don't wear sunscreen all day, every day, basically, I get these large brownish kind of like patches of discoloration on my face. And you can kind of, they look similar to age spots, but it's not exactly the same thing. And because I get mine right below my eyes on on my cheekbones, I have to be really, really careful because if they do come out, they last for nearly a year. So even just a few hours of sun exposure without sunscreen can basically make them pop out. So it is a 
every single day part of my skincare routine. And I put it on in the morning before I even walk out the door. And then I continue to reapply as necessary. Oh, yeah. And you are certainly not alone. I mean, I never go anywhere without my Taos Zinc Protecting Lip Balm, which is like a sunscreen for your lips, which I love. And then I also have this really cool Color Science Brush-On Sunscreen Mineral Powder, which is really cool um, that I use. So, you know, dress listeners, even if you do not have a specific skin condition that calls for the daily use of sunscreen or whatnot, it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, which means that millions and millions of us are joining you and slathering and spraying our bodies down with a wide variety of products created to protect our skin from harmful rays of the sun, which also means sunscreen is big business friends. And this year, it's estimated that the sunscreen market will actually bring in $502 million. And that's just in the United States alone. Yes. And as historians, um, as our regular listeners will know, very few things escape our curiosity as to, you know, how and when and why they came to be. And it was actually a few months ago when I was applying my morning sunscreen that it dawned on me that I knew next to nothing about the history of sunscreen or how individuals went about protecting themselves from the sun before the advent of quote-unquote, modern sunscreen. So when I say modern sunscreen, I really mean that kind of ubiquitous kind found in a bottle, ready and waiting for us all in most grocery stores or drug stores or convenience stores. But as I found out, it turns out that the demand for sunscreen, modern or otherwise, is actually millennia old, which is quite fascinating. Yes, quite a hot topic happening. <laughs> And it was super fun to delve into the ways different cultures throughout history have gone about preventing burns or darkening due to sun exposure. So for instance, for the ancient Egyptians, fair skin was a marker of class and status. So for them, it was less about preventing sunburns per se and more about controlling the tanning process. For this, they used a blend of rice bran, jasmine, and lupine, a combination which an article published in the GAMA Dermatology Journal determined worked because, quote, rice bran absorbs UV light, jasmine helps repair DNA, and lupine lightens skin. Peoples of the American Pacific Northwest used extracts from the Suga hitrophilia pine tree to create salves, which both protected their skin from harmful rays and also had the added bonus of soothing potential overexposure to the sun. And I have to say perhaps wildly less successful <laughs> where, where the ancient Greeks believed that applying a burial of olive oil could prevent overexposure. But, you know, it, I, you have to say, it, it would be millennia later before the root cause of sunburns would eventually be discovered. Olive oil, perhaps not so effective. Yeah. <laughs> and that bit of knowledge that you just spoke of, April, about the root cause of sunburns would come in 1801 when the German chemist and physicist Johann Wilhelm Ritter proved the existence of the sun's quote-unquote chemical rays, what we now call ultraviolet light or UV rays. So we now know that prolonged exposure to UV is a major cause of not only sunburns, but also, you know, premature aging of the skin, wrinkles, liver spots, thickening, or quote-unquote, leathering a skin, but it took some time before science and industry met up on this matter. So in 1878, the Austrian scientist Otto Veil published work promoting the application of plant tannins to the skin as a preventative for damage caused by sun exposure. 
However affected this may have been, tannins were not seen as viable for use in commercial products due to the fact that they stained the skin for prolonged periods. (laughs) And likewise, zinc oxide paste proved an effective inorganic barrier to the sun, but also as a source of comic relief as its thick, pasty nature sat on the surface of the skin, causing the wearer to look ghostly and painted. So it really would not be until the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th that so-called modern sunscreen as we know it today was available to consumers. Yes. Of course. And like many products in their infancy, many of the sunscreens or sun creams to first enter the market had their own shortcomings. So one of the first, known as Zeozon, was developed from horse chestnut extracts, but its pasty consistency didn't exactly endear it to customers either, much like zinc oxide. And another early sunscreen came to market in the 1920s, which was the result of Australian chemist Milton Blake's 12 years of experiments in his kitchen in introducing UV protectants into a cream base. So to produce his sunburn preventative cream commercially, he actually founded Hamilton Laboratories in the land down under, aka Australia. And what's really interesting is to this day, Hamilton Labs remains a major player in the skincare industry, not only in Australia, but the world over. And fashion found a new friend during the 20s and 30s as increasing numbers of women began to engage in sports and other outdoor pursuits. Acquiring a tan now became de rigor for white women, a symbol of leisure rather than labor. So it doesn't exactly come as a surprise that fashion magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar began addressing the matter of sun exposure. And actually, the first mentions of sunscreen we found in the pages of fashion publications pop up around 1935 and quite curiously promoted tanning accelerants right alongside sun prevention Mm -hmm. products. It seems strange, but it's true. Oh, it doesn't. (laughs) Nothing surprises me in early pages of fashion magazines at this point. There's actually this one full page advertisement that summed it up. It said, quote, you can't enjoy the sun's health giving rays and get tanned without exposing yourself to the sun's burning rays because the health rays, the tan rays and the burn rays are all in one the same. So the beauty industry soon realized this bankability of skincare products related to sun exposure. And big names in cosmetics like L'Oreal and Helena Rubinstein targeted this sort of, you know, leisure set in promoting their sunscreens as necessities for, quote, controlling your tan. Helena Rubinstein in particular even retailed multiple offerings of sunscreens in the 1930s, one called Sunproof Cream for those desiring a, quote, bisque tan, and another one called Anti-Sunburn Cream, which allowed the fairest of the fair to, and get this because it's quite cute, laugh in the sun's face. But these sort of tiered offerings of different levels of sun protection offered by the same brand, like Helena Rubinstein. At this time, I, I find this really interesting because this concept of SPF ratings hasn't even been invented yet. And I think we're going to get to that here in a minute. 
So at this time, we're now in the mid-30s, sunscreen was positioned as a sort of luxury cosmetic novelty, so much so that was apparently newsworthy when Olympic athletes, for instance, were supplied with quote-unquote sunburn protection for the 1936 Games held in Berlin. And our recent four-part series on fashion at dress at the Olympics dovetails so nicely with this one. Women's Wear Daily proclaimed to the world, new sun cream goes to Olympics. And I say cream, not screen. We haven't gotten there yet. And it's really hard to say. So the Women's Wear Daily goes on. When the United States Olympic team sailed recently for Berlin, they took with them as sunburn protection, the newly released sun cream perfected by the Tone Laboratories. A two-purpose cream, the new product is designed to prevent burning by filtering out harmful rays. And since the chemical used as a sunscreen is also declared to have a mild anesthetic and antiseptic properties, the cream is being recommended to relieve and soothe after a burn has been received. Bonwit Teller handles the tone line in New York City. And this is especially interesting because Bonwit Teller was, of course, a very high-end department store in New York City. And they retailed all sorts of life's luxuries, including finer cosmetic brands, including Elizabeth Arden's beauty line. And Arden's own sports screen offering took on a slightly different marketing tactic in the 1940s. And instead of protecting the consumer from sunburn, it was touted to, quote, work against snow burn. Also a very real thing. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I just think this is quite interesting because, you know, they're looking to capitalize on this increasing fashionability of winter skiing. And it was a particular product entitled Elizabeth Arden's Sport Gelee which, quote, especially was recommended to ski enthusiasts who were looking to give their skin a glistening finish while protecting it from the reflective rays bouncing up from the snow's surface. So now we're moving into the 1950s when the use of sunscreen really makes this leap from being this novel curiosity of the sport and leisure set and landed firmly in the shopping baskets of conscientious housewives. Largely marketed to women, lengthy articles on effects of the sun and the associated benefits of sunscreen now appear in not only elite fashion magazines, but increasingly in popular magazines, including Good Housekeeping and Parents Magazine. And if vanity in pursuit of the perfect bisque bronze had been the advertising tactic in the 30s and 40s, the marketing of sunscreen in the 50s saw the introduction of really this alarmist tone, which underscored the product's absolute medical necessity. So this was particularly targeted towards mothers. Yes. And in 1956, Americans shelled out more than $14 million on sun care products, adjusted for inflation that would be about $135 million today, in today's dollars. And that's that's just a drop in the bucket for sure compared to the projections for 2024, so just a few years from now, when the global market for sun protection is expected to hit $25 billion in sales due to increased awareness of personal care related to sun exposure. So as sun protection becomes increasingly considered a health concern uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, governmental agencies stepped in to provide guidance to consumers. So in 1978, the Federal Drug Administration, or the FDA, reclassified sunscreens from cosmetics 
to over-the-counter drugs, now making them subject to labeling requirements. So while the subject of SPF was first introduced in the early 1960s, it wasn't until 1978 that the FDA mandated the use of the SPF system in the labeling of sun care products sold in the United States. And perhaps just a wee bit of a public service announcement detour is in order here, Cass, because until recently, and despite the fact that I do wear sunscreen, all day, every day, I, for one, have always been a little bit confused about exactly what SPF means. You know, I, I, I know I know it means sun protection factor, but how often do I need to reapply it at the beach? And is SPF 100 actually any better than SPF 50? Yeah, that is definitely a question I, and I'm sure many of our listeners <laughs> um, are also curious about. So briefly, SPF stands for sun protection factor, as April just said. The numbers attached to a certain product indicate the amount of time it would take for the sun's UVB rays to get through the product and cause a burn as compared to wearing no sunscreen at all. So this gets a tad confusing as it's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. So how Medical News Today explains it, quote, if it takes 15 times longer to burn the skin with a sunscreen on than it does with no sunscreen applied, the SPF is 15. In theory, if under certain conditions, it would take 10 minutes for unprotected skin to start going red, an SPF sunscreen would prevent this for 300 minutes or five hours, which is 30 times longer. I, I'm still confused, actually. Yeah, I don't I, get I, it. I, I, I am. <laughs> I'm still confused, too. So let, let, let me attempt to put this a little more plainly. Basically, the formula is how long it would take your skin to burn without sunscreen times SPF factor, and that equals the number of minutes that your skin will be protected from burning. So say it took me 15 minutes to burn without wearing sunscreen. If I wore SPF 15, the 15 minutes to burn times the 15 SPF equals 225. So I would be protected for 225 minutes or more than three hours. However, if I wore SPF 50, using that same time of 15 minutes to burn without wearing sunscreen, 15 minutes of burn time to 50 SPF equals 750 minutes, a whopping 12.5 hours of protection. Yeah, so this is how the calculation for SPF works. But this is where things get a little hazy because the blocking effect of sunscreen begins to taper off after two hours. So reapplication is needed regardless of your SPF factor. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something to this debate over whether higher SPFs are even necessary. Right. And this is not even to mention the fact that everyone's skin reacts completely differently to the sun. So lighter-skinned persons burn more quickly, of course, than individuals with more melanin. And this accounts for the fact that when I was researching how sunscreen was marketed in the first half of the 20th century, I found this wide array of ads for sun prevention skincare products and publications that catered overwhelmingly to white readerships. But when I turned to the archives of both Jet and Ebony magazines, which their archives, you know, date all the way back to the 1940s and the 1950s, so it's the same kind of time period that we're looking at, basically I found hardly any beauty ads at all for sunscreen products. 
And I was quite curious about this, and I kind of kept digging a little further. And this seems to have been explained by Dr. Lucia C. Earls III, former president of the National Medical Association, who in an article in JET from June of 1997 said, quote, I would say 20 to 25 years ago, most Black dermatologists thought that it, meaning sunscreen, was not necessary. Now, there's increasing evidence as we move forward that we are more susceptible to the sunlight. And this was a sentiment echoed by Harvard-trained dermatologist, Dr. Susan C. Taylor, who explained in 2009 that historically, quote, the biggest misconception among African-Americans is that we do not need sun protection. Even with our skin's built-in shield of melanin, it can and does burn. Although on average, skin cancer occurs less often in Black people, we are still susceptible to it, end quote. So the long and short of it is, is that we are all vulnerable to the sun's rays, and there are various factors which go into which SPF might work best for you on a given day. But wearing sunscreen is one of the best things we can all do to prevent both skin cancer and photoaging. Yes, and I'm so glad that you mentioned photoaging, that term specifically, because SPF designations deal specifically with the UVB rays, which cause the sun to burn exposed skin. And in the 1980s, Coppertone was the first sun care company in the U.S. to introduce products that also protect from UVA rays, which cause photoaging. So like you mentioned earlier, Cass, photoaging equals wrinkles and thickening of the skin, um, commonly referred to as leathering. And what's really interesting is that since the 1980s, a proliferation of new and improved products that offer a combined protection from both UVB and UVA rays have been introduced into the market. And this is the point where we kind of more or less transition to being up to date with sunscreens that are readily available to us on store shelves today. These modern products, which deliver wider protection from both UVB and UVA rays, are commonly labeled as broad spectrum and may or may not also have fancy proprietary terms touted on the front label like helioplex or active photobarrier complex, dermaplex, etc. And thanks to innovations in the micronization of zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, contemporary sunscreen products have a much improved look and feel compared to those of, say, our grandmother's generation. Yes, and I'm just going to say horse chestnut extract, I banish thee. Or olive oil. <laughs> I know. And and all kidding aside, um, I know that you like to tease me, Cass, that I'm the secret science nerd on the show because I do love these topics. I don't think it's a secret, April. <laughs> the secret's <laughs> out. But, but I, I like to remember that the role of science and technology, you know, it has its its own place within the history of fashion. And Sunscreen is perhaps an unexpected example, but once started out its life as being considered a rather novelty for those who had money to burn, or think I should perhaps say not burn, it's really thanks in part to scientific advancement that sunscreen has now become widely available to billions of people around the world. And this kind of effectively democratized it as a preventive healthcare product versus its initial promotion as a cosmetic and indulgence. So, you know, something that was so humble, something that is so everyday to us today is not exactly exempt from these wider forces of the fashion system. And sunscreen is not a physical garment, but it is indeed something that we wear. 
And the who, what, when of why we wear sunscreen has its roots all the way back to the sports and leisure lifestyle of the 1920s as this kind of luxury good. So if that all doesn't come back to fashion, I don't know what does. I'm just going to say slather up in style, friends. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider checking the expiration date on your sunscreen next time you get dressed for the beach. If it's three years old or expired, by the way, throw it out. It's time for a new bottle. Yep. So check out our Instagram this week for some images of early advertisements of sunscreen products, which let's face it, some of which are still very chic today. And of course, you can find us on Insta at dress underscore podcast, where you should DM us if you feel like it, if you have any other questions or episode suggestions. And you can, of course, always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at Higher Heart Media that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you soon. Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.